Father, we come to you this morning. And some of us feel it's not well. Would you remind us that in Christ it is? Amen. Let me invite the kids to be dismissed. I had an introduction planned, but we're just going to read Psalm 23 again. Hear the word of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise be to God for his word. The main point of this psalm is in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verses 2 through 6, all they do is unpack that idea. What does it mean for the Lord to be my shepherd? And so we can look at the psalm in this way. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verses 2 and 3, the Lord's provision satisfies our every need. Verses 4 and 5, The Lord's presence comforts all our suffering. Verse 6, the Lord's promise secures our every hope. So that'll be the way I'll walk through that passage this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And notice those first two words, the Lord. Likely in your Bible, those are in all caps. This is the personal covenant name of God. It's how he revealed himself to his people back in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am, says the Lord. He's saying, I'm God Almighty, uncreated and unchanging, self-sustaining, self-existent, needing nothing, nothing and no one. I was, I am, and I always will be from everlasting to everlasting, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. I am. That's who's here. This is who God is. Yet, How does he reveal himself here in the 23rd Psalm? It's a shepherd. He who is transcendent is also eminently near. 
He who needs no one cares for everyone. The all-powerful Lord is also a personal shepherd. Shepherd is one of the great biblical themes of how God reveals himself to us. So in, in Ezekiel chapter 34, I encourage you to go read that this afternoon, but God's priest, he's put in charge of his people, are taking advantage of them, oppressing them. And God comes, and to his downtrodden people, he speaks. And we read this in Ezekiel chapter 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord. God himself will be the shepherd of his people. He will seek, he will rescue, he will restore, he will lead. Like a good shepherd, he personally comes and he tends and he cares for his flock. And how does he do this? The great I am becomes the humble shepherd and the person of Jesus Christ. So it's no surprise when we read the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. He takes the 23rd Psalm and like a shepherd, he wraps himself in it. Psalm 23 becomes the cloak wrapped around Christ. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down. For the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The God of the Bible is not a distant God who sends a telegram to convey his care. No, he's a personal God who comes in Christ Jesus to lay his life down. In the psalm, notice what David says. The Lord is not just a shepherd. The Lord is not just the shepherd. What's he say? The Lord is whose shepherd? My shepherd. Everything that comes in the rest of that psalm hinges on that single word, my. David knows God personally entrusts him alone. David rests in God's promise to bring a Messiah, to, to be that shepherd, to rescue him from his sin and his suffering. And so David was able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, because he first had the faith to say, the shepherd is my Lord. That's what David is able to do. And the same is true for us here this morning. Only those who trust in Christ as the shepherd of their souls 
can claim the promises that follow in this passage. This passage is so familiar to us that it has been reduced so often to generic platitudes, watered down of any true lasting meaning. But every phrase, every promise, every image, every word in Psalm 23 was purchased by Christ who laid his life down for his sheep. And we rest in that. And so for my friends here this morning that are not trusting Christ alone, I'm so thankful that you're here. I don't think there's any better place you could be. And I invite you to listen to all that's promised in this psalm. And it's promised to everyone who would trust in Christ. And it's my prayer that by the time I'm done preaching this sermon, you'd be so captivated by Christ that you'd say, I want him as my shepherd. That's my prayer for you this morning. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord is our shepherd. Because of this, we shall not want. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean every want and every whim of every desire will be thoughtlessly and automatically fulfilled by the Lord. He loves us too much, too much to let that happen. The idea of not wanting means we shall not be left wanting. So we will not lack anything we need to know God and do all that is pleasing to him. So as one translation puts it, the Lord is the one who is shepherding me. I lack nothing. So we could say it this way. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. And so the idea that God is our good shepherd gives us not every pleasure we want, but everything we need when we need it to enjoy him and to serve others for his namesake, as the psalm says. Which leads us to the rest of the psalm. The Lord's provision satisfies our every need. The Lord's presence comforts all of our suffering. The Lord's promise secures our every hope. Let's look at each of those. The Lord's provision satisfies our needs. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We have a God who knows and meets our needs as thoroughly and as compassionately as a shepherd cares for his flock. And notice the beautiful imagery here. It's not just a grassland with a few bits of grass to just to keep them alive. No. It's green pastures. It's rich, lush, lavish meadows. I picture rolling hills as vibrant as sapphire. I picture a blue sky, crystal blue with, with white, cotton-like, puffy clouds that you just want to reach out and touch. I picture cool ponds of refreshing water, peace, tranquility, rest. Lying down, full, satisfied, 
not a care, not a worry. That's what this verse is conveying to us. Full, satisfied rest. And I certainly think there are implications and applications for our physical needs, hunger and thirst. But I think the focus here is much more internal. The deepest needs within our inmost being. The picture of verse 2 is of content minds and nourished souls. Content mind and nourished souls. And so as we take time to graze in the sweet, satisfying pastures of God's Word, sitting by the quietness and refreshment of the still waters of prayer, our spirits are nourished. Our minds are content. And notice who does the work in this psalm. The Lord. And it's present tense. He makes us lie down. He leads us. He restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness. This psalm is not calling you to do anything. It's calling you to rest in the care of your shepherd. See, the world around us will provide anything but green pastures and still waters. If anything, it's like a rushing river through a rocky canyon. And if you're not careful, you will soon be swept along with the current flowing through our city. Now to be clear, I love our city. It's a great city. There is much to enjoy. It offers much. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I love our city. But my point is this. The norm of our city is not fighting for you to be full, satisfied, and resting in the Lord. Think about the chaos, the pace of life, the expectations. We're tempted in our own hearts and by those around us to measure ourselves by what we accomplish. We're tempted to define ourselves by job titles and degrees. The office demands just one more hour that cuts into family time or miss community group yet again, but it's never enough. Our covetousness has us buy what we don't really need to impress people we really don't even know. That relationship promises true happiness but falls short. Our weary souls throughout the week as they're battered and beaten look to the weekend for rest. Yet Monday comes around again and I'm just as empty. And all this, we're tempted to crave what we don't have rather than focusing on what God has provided. We're tempted to let others define us rather than resting in our identity in Christ. We're we're tempted in these ways. And so Psalm 23 is inviting and it's asking us, will you lie down in the green pastures of God's word feeding on his faithfulness? Will you come rest by the still waters of prayer, remembering 
in living on God's promises? Will you adjust the rhythm of your life to remember that you are a human being created in the image of God to enjoy him? Or we be swept along the current and just be a human doing, trying to meet your expectations and the expectations of others. Psalm 23 has a word for us. Will you rest in the green pastures and the still waters? Our good shepherd says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And when you come to him, he's not holding out on you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Restoration Church, I challenge us this year to think about what does it mean to feed on green pastures and lie beside still waters. If you want to think more about that, let me encourage you to find somebody in your community group. Find a trusted brother or sister and, and think about how you can adjust the rhythm of your life to be more in line with Psalm 23 too. I encourage us to try to live this out by God's grace. But as you do, we all know that it's not just the world around us that pulls us from green pastures and still waters. It's also our soul within us. Verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. So we find that same word restore in Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance. When David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. We also find it in the context of a downcast soul, not because of personal sin, but because of the brokenness around. And so we read Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations in chapter 1 saying, for a comforter is far from me, one to restore my spirit. So in verse 3, David is talking about refreshing repentance the Lord brings in the midst of personal sin and the soul anchoring hope in the midst of our sorrow and brokenness. David is saying he restores my joy of fellowshipping with God. And this comes both in the context of the sins that we commit and those committed against us. See, sin, both of those ways of sin have an effect upon us. It's, it's likened to a, an effect when you, when you prick a beach ball. And if over time that prick is left unchecked, what happens? It becomes deflated and it feels useless. So it is with our soul when sin is left unchecked. And this is one of the tactics of the enemy. He will bring to mind all that you've done wrong, trying to convince you that God could never forgive you for that thing that you did, that romantic immorality, the drunkenness, the lying, the angry outburst at your children, that time you stole from a friend, the gossip, the slander. He'll whisper in your ear, because of that, God will never love you. And for others, the enemy attacks in a different way. He tries to convince you you're not worthy of 
God's love because of what's been done to you. You've been violated physically and intimately. You've been taken advantage of by the one who is supposed to honor and protect you. You've been oppressed by the one who is supposed to love you. And because of this, Satan whispers into your soul, you're not worthy. You're too dirty. God's ashamed of you. Don't you know that? And in both instances, God has a word. I'll restore your soul. His provision satisfies our deepest need. He restores our soul. Remember what Jesus the Good Shepherd did. He laid his life down on the cross. Jesus the Christ, the Good Shepherd, took our sins upon himself that he might wash us white as snow. On the cross, the Good Shepherd hung naked, ashamed, mocked, taken our shame so that he could clothe us with white, pure, radiant robes of righteousness. And death could not hold him. He rose again, and he's going to come, and he's going to take his bride who is pure and white and beautiful, and he's going to look into her face, and he's going to say, I have always loved you, and I still do, and I can't wait to spend eternity with you. Christian brother and sister, don't let your sins you've done or those committed against you define you. God cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God blots out all your transgressions and remembers them no more. God removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. God cancels the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, nailing it to the cross. He washes us white as snow, pure as wool. God laid your sin and your sorrow on Jesus the Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he does. He lavishes riches of grace. You are honored and precious in his eyes. God does not just tolerate you, but rejoices over you. God is not ashamed to call you son or daughter, but takes the great delight in you. Ephesians 1, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 62, Zephaniah 3. Will you behold the restoring, soul-satisfying, heart-anchoring, sin-defeating, sorrow-shattering, shame-demolishing, life-defining grace of the Lord who is our shepherd? Rest. Rest. He will lead you in paths of righteousness, right paths, for his name's sake. If you're here and you've never turned from your sin or you think that you're too messed up to be loved by God, Psalm 23 is inviting you to come to him. Will you trust in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, this morning? Will you trust in him? If you want to know more about that, come talk to me. Talk to anybody you've seen up here. Talk to the person you came with. So Psalm 23 teaches that the Lord's provision satisfies our every need. But this does not mean a life of following Jesus will be easy. No, there will be hardships and hurts, tears and trials. But the Lord's presence comforts us in all of our suffering. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, don't run over those first two words, even though. It does not say apart from. It says even though. David's life, even as God's beloved, hand-chosen king, the man who's described as a man after God's own heart, was intimately familiar with suffering. The valley of the shadow of death and evil are not just poetic words from David's pen. They come out of real life events. And so though we're never probably going to be hunted by a king whose throne we're overtaking, though we'll probably never be chased by a son who's trying to assassinate us, we will face shadows of death. We will be confronted with evil. And at many times, it's at no fault of your own. The language here of shadow and death and evil are broad. It certainly includes the fear of imminent death, but it also includes misery and hardship, distress, adversity, harm, sickness. See, all of us would love to live in the green pastures and the still waters of verse 2, but at some point we're going to find ourselves in the valley of verse 4. Any pastor or or teacher who tells you otherwise is lying. There is no amount of faith that will prevent you from facing trials and hardships. There is no amount of faith that can only produce of life, of health, wealth, and everything else that's prosperous. Notice that verse 4 comes after verse 3. Intuitive, huh? But what's he doing in verse 3? He's leading. Verse 4 is not disconnected from verse 3. Sometimes in God's sovereignty and his infinite wisdom, he's leading us into the valley. Think about Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Yes, we will find ourselves in the valleys. And that maybe some of you are right now, you're walking, or maybe you don't even feel like you're walking, maybe you're crawling through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Deeply troubled marriages, severe financial pressures, loved ones in crisis, cancer diagnosis, loneliness, downcast soul, chronic illness, plaguing body issues, death of a friend or family member, unmet godly desires, crippling doubt. You look up and you're in the valley and you're so deep, there's no light, it's only shadows. I hope that you see that the Bible understands our world. It is not filled with puddle-deep platitudes. It understands our world. The Christian life is realistic yet optimistic. It understands our world as it is and offers the hope we all want. And I recognize that does not answer every question in the midst of suffering, but I hope it does show you that there's a God who understands and knows suffering. He's not removed from it. As we'll see in a minute, he completely entered into it. So as we think about suffering, let me draw you a couple of things. Note that it's through a valley. It's not in a cave or on a dead-end trail. The emphasis is on through. There is a future hope. There's always a way 
out. It's through a valley. For Christians, suffering is always temporary and blessings are always eternal. The best is always yet to come. Always. And notice David is talking about a shadow. Shadows are real. They can scare you and they can haunt you, but they cannot ultimately harm you. The shadow of a snake might frighten, but it cannot bite. The shadow of a sword might torment, but it cannot kill. Shadows are destroyed by light. And Jesus left the green pastures and the still waters of heaven. And he did not just walk through the valley of the shadow of death. No, 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 friends. He climbed Mount Calvary, hung upon a cross, tasting the substance of death. But on the third day, he rose again. And as he did, he burst forth as the light of the world. And at once, the substance of death became nothing but a shadow. The greatest enemy of Satan, weapon of Satan, is now defeated. Christian brothers and sisters, we will face real suffering in this world. And at the moment, it may not feel like a shadow. But 400,363 years from now, in the presence of Christ, you'll look back and it'll be a shadow. But here's the good news. You don't have to wait 400,363 years. The Lord's comfort is a present reality now. Notice what David says. Why will he fear no evil? Why will he fear no evil? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Did you notice just what happened in the psalm? David went from talking about he to a more personal and intimate you. In the green pastures and still waters, he talked about God. Now in the midst of suffering, he's crying out to God. And notice where his comfort lies. It's not in a change of circumstance. It's not in being given something. It's not in other people. It's not in immediate relief of pain. For you are with me. His hope is in the ultimate, intimate and ultimate all-comforting presence of the Lord. And here's the thing, the Lord is with us in suffering because he himself tasted suffering. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help all those who are being tempted. Jesus took our death and our darkness that we might have light and life. God is not immune to our suffering so we can have a hope in the midst of it. He is with us. Isn't this what we just celebrated at Christmas? Emmanuel? In my Bible right there, for he is with us, I wrote Emmanuel. He's with us. See, in the midst of suffering, sometimes it's only presence that calms us. There's no words, there's no reasons, there's nothing. Have you ever been there? That you just need somebody to sit with you? 
He ministers to us through His Holy Spirit and dwelling inside of us, reminding of His presence. And He ministers to us through His people. This is what we get to do as a church. We get to remind each other when we're too weary to lift up our heads and see God by ourselves. We have a brother or a sister who comes and reminds us God is here. He's not abandoned us. God's delays are not denials. God's delays are not denials. So God can be trusted not just in times of influence, but also in affliction. See, Jesus is better than anything prosperity can give, and Jesus is better than anything suffering can take. He is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. For you are with me. It's one of the nourishing meals of God's comforting grace in the green pastures of his word. Will you feast? I encourage you to memorize Psalm 23 if you don't already have it memorized. If you've got it memorized, meditate on it. After you do that, go to Psalm 46. Meditate and memorize on that. And then maybe pick a passage like Revelation 21, 3 through 5, and commit it to memory and feed upon it in hard times. And still, if that's not all enough to get you through your suffering, maybe verse 5 will be. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, overflows. So I noticed something here the first time I've ever noticed studying that this week. The imagery shifts. I know it might sound silly, but I've never stopped and noticed this. We move from green pastures and dark valleys to a table. And it's not just any table, but that language prepare a table is language of a king preparing a feast. It's a king preparing a feast for a favored guest. So get this, Restoration Church. We move from a good shepherd to a gracious king. And this king sits David down, and what's he do? He anoints him with oil. Remember Isaiah? The oil of gladness upon your head. This is favor. This is joy. This is honor. Anointing of oil is a way of bestowing welcome. And David gets a cup. And the king begins to pour, and he just keeps on pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. The finest of wines just flows everywhere. And he doesn't care. He's like, I'm just an abundant host. And David says, my cup overflows. David is confident in his Lord's love for him and devotion to him. He does not see God as some uninterested, semi-generous ruler who happens to give him a loaf of bread as he begs on his way by. That's not David's view of God. David sees God as a gracious king who's prepared a feast for him to enjoy. Christian, is this your view of God? Do you see yourself as a beggar and God as a stingy giver? Or do you see God as a gracious king who loves to lavish you with honor? Do you define your relationship with God only based on negative terms? He's not mad at me. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Or, you define it another way. See, those things are true if you're trusting Christ. But left alone, they're not sufficient. So imagine my daughter coming to me. Last night we were pulling into the parking garage and she, on her own initiative, said, Daddy, Daddy, 
I think I have the best mom and dad in the world. Now, imagine if I said to her, that's great, honey. I don't hate you. It's true. But would that be enough to endear her toward me? To run to me in times of trouble? To to enjoy our presence? Oh, no. Yet so often this is how we think about God. And so let me encourage you to use all the language of Scripture to define your relationship with God. All of it. You can start right here in Psalm 23, seeing you have a good shepherd and a gracious king who gladly welcomes those who trust in him to come feast at his table. But it gets even better. Where's this meal taking place? In the presence of my enemies. This is not just any meal. This is a victory meal, a royal banquet feast in the presence of defeated enemies who can do nothing to disturb the joy. In other words, David is not just delivered from his enemies. No, his enemies become his slave to serve his joy. That's what's happening here. So the king is hosting a meal and he's rubbing the spoils of victory in the face of his defeated foe. This would not be good for us to do this. But in God's eternal economy, this is right and good and serves his everlasting glory and our eternal joy. See what scripture says? We are not just conquerors. We are what? More than conquerors. Our enemies become our slave to serve our joy. God's sovereign goodness and mercy is so amazing that he takes those things Satan would want to use against us and he turns it around and his eternal wisdom uses it to serve our joy. David enjoys his shepherd more because he went through the valley of the shadow of death. Same is true for us. The Lord's presence comforts us in all our suffering, both now and forevermore. Which leads us to the last verse. The Lord's promises secure our every hope. Look there at verse 6 again. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's confidence only seems to grow throughout this psalm, doesn't it? Surely, indeed, there's no doubt, despite what happens, the Lord's goodness and mercy will be his traveling companions forever. That word mercy is, is the, that, that really packed term of God's covenant love for his people. It's the steadfast love. It's the loving kindness. And so David knows no matter what happens to him, no matter what he does, in spite of everything, God won't ever cease loving him. The, the Lord loves his own with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. David's hope is not resting on his commitment to the Lord, but on the Lord's commitment to him. Again, notice who does all the work in this psalm. And where does David look? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord is where God's presence is centered and intimate. That's why David says, One thing I have asked that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David is hoping in heaven. Not disembodied spirits floating around playing harps. Real people 
really in the presence of their God with each other, enjoying life as it was always meant to be. No disease, no death, no sickness, no sorrow. The world we all want, enjoying God with one another forever. And what does the good shepherd Jesus Christ promise us? Just a few chapters after he says, I am the good shepherd, John 14. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also Jesus promised, and his promises secure our ultimate hope. He will come and take us to be with him forever. Heaven on earth. Restoration Church, let's continue to help each other hope in heaven. As we journey through the dark valleys of this world, may we look ahead to green pastures and still waters. Let's remind each other that God's goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. Look in your Bibles. Look at the very first word of this psalm. The Lord. What's the last word in this psalm? Forever. That's what this psalm promises. The Lord forever. This psalm tells us about a good shepherd and a gracious king. Perhaps David was looking on his own life. He was a shepherd and he became a king. But I don't think so much David is looking back as he's looking forward. God made him a promise of a greater king and a greater shepherd. And every verse of Psalm 23 is a stroke of the brush, painting us a beautiful picture of the greater shepherd king, the Lord Jesus. Green pastures are beneath, still waters are beside, a prepared table is before, the enemy is crushed below, goodness and mercy follow close behind, and the Father's house is just beyond. Christian brothers and sisters, what more could we want? Non-Christian friend, what more could you want? The Lord's provision satisfies our every need. The Lord's presence comforts all of our suffering. The Lord's promise secures our every hope. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or perhaps it would be better say, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. Let's pray. Father, We come to you and we thank you for the robust beauty of your word. Use it to feed our weary souls, we pray. Amen.